Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5, says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a text that uh, uses language that might seem a little alarming. Um, and for people who consider Christianity to be, a pe- to be a religion of peace and niceness alone, only, uh, it is alarming. Of course, Christianity is a religion of peace in, in certain ways. Uh, the gospel proclaims that our sins can be forgiven and we can have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And peace with God is real peace. In fact, if you don't have peace with God, any other peace that you may have is um, insufficient. Then, of course, knowing that God, the God of the universe is for us and works for our good through every difficulty and trial, knowing this is something that can give us deep comfort and peace through all things. Uh, Philippians uh, 4, be anxious for nothing. Before it says that, it says the Lord is, is near. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. So knowing that the Lord is for us, that he's with us, that he's near, uh, can give us peace. And of course, when Jesus returns, uh, he will usher in his kingdom in its fullness, uh, which is a kingdom of peace. One of the key Christmas prophecies out of Isaiah, uh, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Uh, So Christianity is a religion a faith of peace. But in this age, we are in conflict. In this world that we live in, we are in conflict. And it's a conflict of worldviews. In fact, one way to describe the tremendous days of turmoil and even revolution that we live in today is a massive clash of worldviews. A worldview is... uh, just kind of flip those words around, it's, it's the way that you view the world. Maybe one way to think of it is the, the, the glasses, the spectacles you put on through which you see everything. Worldview is huge and everyone, everybody has one. Everybody has a worldview. And as Christians, it's important that we develop a worldview that is distinctively Christian and biblical. And I add the word biblical because um, Christians get their worldview from the Bible, okay, not from somewhere else. Here's why it's so important. We live in a world that is run through with anti-Christian and even pagan assumptions. And if we're not careful, we can adopt ideas that are hostile to the Christian faith. Not only that, But you and I are also called to positively jump in and join the fight, this conflict that we're in. So here's here's the big idea from these three verses out of 2 Corinthians 10. 
we are in a war war of worldviews, and the goal is to take the divinely powerful weapons God has given us and exert and expand his kingdom. Let me say that again. We are in a world of, uh, excuse me, a war of worldviews, and the goal is to take the divinely powerful weapons he's given us, the tools he's given us, that God has given us to exert and expand his kingdom. And so what I want to do is just, I want to draw out of this text five principles for developing or deepening a Christian biblical worldview, okay? Five principles that will help us develop or deepen, wherever you happen to be, okay, to develop or deepen your worldview based on the Bible. Five principles of a biblical worldview, okay? That's where we're going to go today. Principle one, and we already talked about this, we are at war, okay? We need to know that we are at war. The whole Christian life is not war, but for the entirety of our lives, we are engaged in this conflict. What I mean is every part of the Christian life is not war, but our lives are engaged in the conflict from beginning to end, and we need to arm ourselves with this thinking so that we can faithfully engage in this war. And I think we need the Lord's help with this. Imagine if you lived uh, at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. You woke up that day. It was nice and, I don't know if it was nice and sunny, but hey, you're in Hawaii, so it's paradise, right? You wake up that day, you're in paradise, this is great. And all of a sudden, you hear planes flying in the distance, and you see bombs dropping, and you see the smoke rising up in the distance at Pearl Harbor. All of a sudden, you went from thinking everything's great to we are at war. It was obvious. However, if you were born in a country that was embroiled in war for years, and after you were born, the country was, continued to be embroiled for, for years, it just maybe seemed normal. What we feel in our society right now is a clash of worldviews. And of course, this text tells us that we are at war. Notice the language of this text. It uses words like waging warfare. It says destroying things, destroying strongholds, and taking things captive. It talks about weapons. This is the language of warfare. Now, in our society right now, it may seem more acute than at times in the past. It seems like, okay, there's something unique about the time we live in. There seems to be a a growing division and growing sense of unrest in our society, even here in America. But make no mistake, this war has been raging ever since the beginning. Well, not the very beginning. Ever since the serpent deceived Eve. And Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree that God said, don't eat that fruit. And humanity fell into sin. Remember what God said to the serpent? Remember what God said to the serpent? He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God set the terms of this war. 
enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. The woman's seed, of course, ultimately is Christ who came to bruise the head of the serpent. But it also includes all who are united to Christ, which includes us. Uh, You know, we rightly understand that Jesus came as the, the one who would bruise the head of the serpent and through his death and resurrection, he most certainly did. But then there's this amazing verse in Romans 16. I remember back when Alyssa and I were in college and we were part of a part of a college group and we sang this song and during a certain part of it, we all jumped. It was great. The God of peace, Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan Yes, God will crush him underneath your feet. And at that point, everyone would jump, okay? Um, So we are part of the seed of the woman through our union with Christ. The Bible is full of the language of antithesis or opposites that help us understand what this war is about. The Bible speaks of light and darkness, Speaks of good and evil, truth and lies, or truth and deception, right and wrong, children of the devil and children of God. From our text, it's clear that the war is fundamentally an ideological war. It's not a war of guns and bombs, but it's a war of ideas. Paul says we destroy strongholds. Or maybe your translation says fortresses. We destroy fortresses. The the picture here is of a stronghold where uh, people would run for safety when an invading army was coming to attack. Or it also could be used to describe a, a kind of prison. We destroy strongholds. And then Paul describes what these strongholds are. They're not physical. He says we destroy arguments speculations. We destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The strongholds that need to be destroyed are are ideologies, their philosophies, their false religions, their speculations, and so forth. It's opposing worldviews that need to be dismantled. John MacArthur comments regarding this text. He he says, um, Our battle is with the false ideologies men and demons propagate in order to get the world to believe them. So it's ideas, it's uh, philosophies, it's worldviews. Now, that might seem somewhat harmless, right? Guns and bombs can do a lot of harm, but ideas? Ideas are not harmless. Ideas have grave consequences. Take, for instance, the idea of Marxism. Okay? It's a godless worldview, right? Karl Marx, Communist Manifesto, Workers of the World Unite, right? It's a godless worldview that had grievous consequences to the tune of at least 100 million dead people in the 20th century alone. Think of the worldview of Nazism. This philosophy had grave consequences. 
Think of the, this, this worldview or philosophy that you know, is, is kind of front and center here in America, at least the last couple of weeks, this idea that a woman ought to be totally free and autonomous to choose what to do with a baby in her womb. I mean, it's gotten so far that the baby's worth is de- dependent on whether or not the mother wants it, him or her. That's been pretty destructive. 60, over 60 million aborted babies in America in 49 years. Maybe a billion across the world. What about secular humanism, the godless ideology so rampant in our culture, responsible for all kinds of confusion, but at the root of which is this idea that man is completely autonomous to decide and be and do whatever he feels and wants. Brothers and sisters, we're at war. I mean, this, this is where we are right now. We're at war. It's a war of ideas, and ideas have consequences. Number two, principle number two for a biblical worldview is Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. The last phrase of our text says that the, the goal is to take every thought captive to obey Christ. The objective is obedience to Jesus Christ. And not just some obedience to Christ, not just most of the way obedience to Christ, but total obedience to Christ. Universal obedience to Christ. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's Lord. Upon his resurrection, Jesus gathered with his disciples. We call this the Great Commission. But before Jesus said, go make disciples, which is, was the commission, before he said that, he made this massive assertion about himself. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, it's fascinating. We, we, would, we, would, glad, we would gladly and assume all authority in heaven belongs to him, right? In the, that spiritual, unseen realm. But he also says, all authority on earth has been given to me. And why? Because he rose from the dead bodily. Because he's seated at the Father's right hand. It was the incarnation of Christ. It was the bodily resurrection of Jesus that informed someone like Abraham Kuyper. Ever heard of Abraham Kuyper? He was a Dutch theologian. He was actually prime minister of Dutch, I think, for four years. He made this massive, I think, glorious statement, true statement, He said there is not a square inch in the whole domain of of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over it all, does not cry, mine. It all belongs to him. He's Lord. Which is why the most fundamental Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession, of course, means more than just uttering words. It's more than just opening our mouths and reading something on a teleprompter or right in front of us. The word confess means to say the same as, or to to say the same as another. 
In other words, when we confess Jesus is Lord, we are saying the same thing that God says about Jesus, the Father says about Jesus. And for you and I, we're saying the same thing that Christians have been saying for two millennia about Jesus. He is Lord. Now, the early Christians, first, second, third, fourth centuries, uh, they often said Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, and it cost them their lives. They were fed to lions, or they were burned at the stake, or something like that. Jesus is Lord. When we confess this, it will have flesh and bone implications for our lives. Confessing Christ's lordship is all about allegiance, bowing the knee, bowing the heart. And so when we truly confess Jesus as Lord, we will seek to bring our entire minds, all of our thoughts, into submission to Christ and all of our lives. We will seek to live our lives under the lordship of Jesus in every area. There will be no area of life that will be off limits to him. None. Now, that doesn't mean we perfectly do it. But we're not saying Jesus is Lord of everything except for this one little area over here. This area belongs to me. It doesn't work that way. We will want to bring Christ's Lordship to bear wherever we can when we confess Jesus is Lord. And of course, it starts in our hearts and in our homes and, and then spreading out from there. This is one thing that drove Hudson Taylor to want to give his life to be a missionary in China, inland China. He said the following, he said, how few of the Lord's people have practically recognized the truth, listen to this, that Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. I'm challenged by that. He's either, Christ, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord of all. At all. At the end of the day, resistance to Christ's lordship really is futile. Did you, you do know, don't you, that ultimately every person will confess Jesus as Lord. And every person will bow their knee to him. Every single person will. Paul said in Philippians 2, because Jesus humbled himself to be obedient to the point of death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The name that's above every other name, it's not the name Jesus. It's the name Lord. Christ has been given the name Lord. He is Lord. Now, you can bow to him gladly now or later, not gladly. So, if we would have a strong, growing, biblical worldview, we must confess Jesus as Lord of Lords. Okay, principle, principle number three, the truth is our weapon. The truth is our weapon. The text says that our weapons are 
strong, mighty, powerful. In fact, it says they have divine power. And again, these strongholds are ideas, lofty opinions, arguments, ideologies, philosophies. And notice this part. It says it's these things. It's lofty ideas. It's, it's, uh, it's arguments and so forth that are raised up against the knowledge of God. That's how we know the weapon is truth. It's these things that are raised up against the knowledge of God. These things that are elevated and obscure who God is or lie about who God is. That's the key. It's the knowledge of God that's being obscured. These false religions and false ideologies, they obscure the knowledge of God. It's not American values or traditional values, quote-unquote, that concern us so much. It's the knowledge of God. You know, one thing that, um, and I have, if you know me well, you know at least my, where I land politically and so forth, but one thing that so disturbed me about the last election was it seemed like people were more excited and gung-ho about America than the kingdom of God. And it was that our precious America is being ruined. And listen, I love America. I love living here. Praise God that I do. But it is the knowledge of God that these false ideologies obscure. And quite frankly, there was a lot of that going on this last election and still is. What kind of weapon can demolish these kinds of strongholds? It's obvious. It's the truth. It's the truth. These ideologies, again, obscure the knowledge of God. They deny the knowledge of God. They push lies about God. The only thing that can combat these lies is the truth. And I think it's, I think it's very important for us to see this. Um, our text makes it clear that this warfare is an offensive warfare, okay? You, you go to Ephesians chapter 6, and much of the full armor of God is defensive measures. We put up the shield of faith to guard us from the fiery darts of the evil one. We put on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of truth, and so forth. Here in 2 Corinthians 10, we are called to go on the offensive, and we do so with the truth. We go on the offensive to tear down strongholds to destroy arguments with the truth. We must be armed with the truth. Now, it's kind of a fanciful thing that people say um, when they say that we must not be so zealous against error and false ideologies so much as we are zealous for the truth. And I, listen, I, I get that. I understand that. There are some people that have an unhealthy craving for always pointing out every person they deem a heretic for every jot and tittle of doctrine they don't subscribe to. But I also agree with J.C. Ryle, who said something like this. He who is not zealous against error is not likely to be zealous for the truth. 
Okay, we need to be zealous against error. Why? Because it's about the knowledge of God that's being obscured, that's being diminished, that's being covered over, that's being pushed away, and lies are being propagated. As Paul enumerates the different pieces of the full armor of God, the only offensive weapon is the sword. Well, the only explicitly offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. So when I say truth, I don't mean your truth. I don't mean truth that you hear in your mind and heart. I mean truth that we derive from God's Word. We need to arm ourselves with truth in order to pull down and demolish fortresses of lies and deception. We need to sharpen our sword because this is the weapon God has given us. And listen, it has divine power. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, which I don't think Paul's saying it's not, it's, it's, uh, he's, not, he's not contrasting immaterial and material, but the flesh being not the Holy Spirit and spiritual being the weapon that the Spirit gives us. It has divine power. Just like Aragorn, any Lord of the Rings fans here, would never go into battle without his sword. You and I never want to go into battle without our sword, the sword of the Spirit. This is the weapon of our warfare, which is divinely powerful. The Lord wants to place, think about this, the Lord wants to place this razor-sharp sword in your hands. Hebrews 4.12 The word of God is living and active, sharper than any any two-edged sword. He wants to put it in your hands. He wants you to be armed with the sword of the Spirit. Principle number four. This This might sound like something new, at least the language of it. I think the print I think you'll understand where I go with it. But principle number four: there is no neutrality. Okay? Because we're in war, because Christ is king and Lord over everything, because our weapon is essentially truth that combats lies and false ideologies, there can be no neutral ground. Why is it that we must take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ? Because no thought's neutral. Our minds are not neutral. The messages we get everywhere in our society, they're not neutral. And so we must take every thought captive. No worldview is neutral. No argument's neutral. No lofty opinion is neutral. Neutrality is a total myth. Francis Schaeffer spoke about this. He said the following. He said, There is a sad myth going around today, the myth of neutrality. According to this myth, the secular world gives every point of view an equal chance to be heard. And it works fairly well, he said, unless you are a Christian. We really need to understand this. We need to start seeing things as black and white. 
right and wrong, true and false. Too many, and I'm not picking on you, we, we, need, to pra- we need to practice this. Too many, if this applies to you, I'm not picking on you, okay? But too many, I, I fear, live almost their entire lives in this so-called gray area. There's no neutral ground. Jesus said you're either with him or against him. You're either gathering to him or scattering from him. Our society, I mentioned this earlier, is dominated by anti-Christian pagan assumptions, things that we can sometimes just take for granted and just assume they are right or at least harmless. If they're not right, they're at least harmless. What harm is there? But if every thought is to be taken captive to obey Christ because they're either for him or against him, and if believed, they will either cause us to gather to him or scatter from him, we need to refuse to concede to the myth of neutrality. Let me just give an example. And just hear me all the way through here, okay? Please. Um, To say men and women are equal sounds good, right? And of course, there's lots of ways that as Christians we would affirm that. Men and women are equal in dignity and worth before God. Men and women are equal image bearers of God and equal heirs of the grace of life. This is all true and we say amen to all of it. But men and women are not equal in every respect and I think that's just obvious. I'm going to just throw something at you that I'm sure is going to be a huge surprise to everyone here. Men and women are different. And God designed it that way. So it's a good thing. To say men and women are equal in every respect is not Christian. And to flatten all the differences is not Christian. The differences go further than just biology, just reproductive body parts. The way that the differences between male and female have been flattened in our society has done great harm in our society. The transgendered insanity we find ourselves in didn't happen out of nowhere. Now, we may gasp when we hear someone in high in a place of high authority in our government, confess that she doesn't know what a woman is. But how long have we said that men and women are basically the same? This whole egalitarian stuff. How long have we diminished the beauty of femininity and womanhood and say that the goal for a woman ultimately is just to be like a man? How long have we diminished the goodness and masculinity of true godly manhood How long have boys and girls been told basically that they're interchangeable? God designed, again, huge surprise. God designed women and girls to be women and girls, not men and boys. God designed men and boys to be men and boys, not women and girls. We need to take every thought captive 
to obey Christ, when we hear something, it's like, huh, is that true? What does God's word say? There's no neutrality. Principle number five. We need to start swinging our swords. Okay? The weapon of truth is powerful. It has divine power to do what? To destroy. To destroy strongholds. To destroy these ideological fortresses that enslave people. And I think Paul, the way Paul's talking about this, it is, it is um, ideological fortresses in other people that we are to go and seek to rescue. Although we certainly apply this to ourselves as well. We are to destroy philosophies and worldviews that enslave people and to take thoughts captive. But a sword in the sheath or on the bookshelf does nothing to destroy anything. It needs to be taken out. It needs to be taken out and swung. It needs to be taken out and we need to hack away at these fortresses of false ideologies. We need to take the sword and swing at these foolish, godless ideas. The word of God needs to be unleashed. We need to swing our swords. The truth needs to be unleashed through us. The expectation in this passage is that when the weapon of the word is unleashed, listen, it actually will pull down strongholds. That's, I mean, read through this passage and it's, it seems clear. The weapons have divine power to do what? To pull down, destroy strongholds. So there's the expectation that this will happen. Now listen, not overnight, right? Perhaps, but it will happen. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, there's this phrase. It's almost the exact same phrase that's used, and it says this, the word of God increased and multiplied. I actually love that phrase. The word of God increased and multiplied. In other words, the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit in spreading the gospel, destroying hostile and foreign ideologies, was described as the word of God increasing and multiplying. The word of God went about conquering. And one way, it's not the only way, and there's a lot of other things we could include in this, but one way to think about the history of the last 2,000 years is the word of God going about and conquering. From a little group of 120 people in Jerusalem in an upper room to the gospel spreading almost to the entire world. But the disciples had to take the sword of the word out and swing it, and so do we. Listen to what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther was uh, kind of the, I guess the, the spark, at least at a, on a human level, um, of the Protestant Reformation. And one thing he was so eager to translate the Bible from Latin into German so his people in Germany could read it. 
He was eager to write and expound scripture and teach and preach, and he did so um, voraciously. Is that the word I'm looking for? He did so uh, with great um, pro- pro- Prolificy? I don't know if that's a word. All right. Very prolific in it. How's that? There we go. Here's what he said. He said, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. He said, I did nothing nothing. The word did it all. Had I wanted to start trouble, I could have. I could have started such a little game at Worms that even the emperor wouldn't have been safe. But what good would that have done? I did nothing. I left it to the word. Brothers and sisters, we hold in our hands a mighty, mighty weapon. We have the Holy Spirit in us. This is his word. This is his sword that he places in our hands. We need to dive into it, immerse ourselves in it, devour it, and learn to take it up and do battle. The very word of God by which God spoke the universe into existence, by which he called you from death to life, from the darkness and superstition to the light of truth, and sound thinking, this is to be taken up in your hands and wielded as a weapon with divine power to destroy strongholds. Amen? So, we have to see clearly, we are in a clash of worldviews and need to see things from the lens of Scripture. Okay, We are in a war. That's principle number one. Principle number two, Christ is Lord. Number three, the truth is our weapon. Number four, there's no neutrality. Number five, brothers and sisters, take up the sword and go to battle. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, do thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the clarity of it. And I pray, Father, that insofar as I spoke with clarity and accuracy according to your word, that it would go deep into the hearts of your people here and those who are watching online or listen later, that they would be impacted, that your, wor- that your word would do the work. It's your word that um, makes, equips us for every good work. I pray that that would happen. And ultimately, Father, I pray that we would be um, men, women, children, families, and a body that sees what's happening and knows what to do um, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to partake of Lord's Supper. Um, and just a reminder, the kids are going to come in and join us for this. So uh, John's going to grab all the classrooms, the kids, and they'll be in in just, um, just a moment. While he's getting the kids, I want to just make a couple points of application And the first one is this. Strongholds first need to be destroyed in us. Perhaps. Okay? Um, The thrust of the text is that we're given mighty weapons to pull down strongholds that others are caught in. But let's face it. We have blind spots too. 
and we need to submit our thoughts, our ideas, our viewpoints, our philosophies, and so forth to God. And listen, we need to say to the Lord, Father, please let your spirit and your word destroy ideas, thoughts, viewpoints, philosophies in me that are contrary to your truth. Okay? Um, If you humbly do this with an open heart and an open Bible, guess what? God will answer that prayer. He will. Second, just point of application, we are to be part of setting other people free. And I just pray that the Lord would give us compassion to see people around us that need to be set free. Fortresses need to be ransacked that people have been kept blind in, blind from the knowledge of God, blind from their sin, blind from the work of Christ, blind from how they can be saved. A couple weeks ago, a young man came to our door. He was selling, um, he was selling pest control services. You guys have those guys come to your door too? It seems like the three or four of them come every summer to our house. And, uh, and I didn't buy it from him, but he was thirsty, asked for a drink of water, so he came in, I gave him a glass of ice water. And uh, as we got talking, he told me where he's from and what he was doing and, and uh, where he's going to college. He's 18 years old. He's from Utah. He's going, after this summer, he's going back to Utah to go to Brigham Young. I was like, this young man is a Mormon. And my heart just ached for this man because I know that that's, it's a false religion. It, it's a false ideology. And I know that I know enough because I've been conversant with Mormons at times, just, just want to be able to talk with them and, and, and bring them to know Christ. And I know that there's a verse in the Book of Mormon, which is their authoritative text, by the way. They say they like the Bible, it's a good book, but it's the Book of Mormon that they hold to. And he said, he didn't say, but I know there's a verse in there that says, uh, for we know that we are saved by grace after all that we can do. Now, the first part of that sounds like Ephesians 2, doesn't it? We're saved by grace through faith, but then Ephesians 2 says, and this is not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of, bo- not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And so I know this young man, he's trying to be good enough. He's trying to do enough for God to rescue him, for God to fill in the gaps, right, where he falls short. And so I asked him what it means to be saved and, and he, went, he talked about Jesus and I said, now, but don't you say that you also have to perform works that reach a certain level for God to save you? And he said, well, yeah, you got to do that. And, and I turned to him, his name's not Joe, but I said, I'm going to call him Joe. I said, Joe, there is no way you can ever have peace with God unless you trust Christ alone, that your sins are forgiven through faith in him and they will never be counted against you. How would you ever know, Joe, if you've done enough? You could never know. Now, this young man didn't fall down and repent. But man, I had such compassion for him. And we need to pray that we would. Because we run into these people all the time. We work with them. They live in our neighborhoods. And we need to go to battle on their behalf. Last point of application, real quick, okay? We need vigilance to pass down a biblical worldview to our kids. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, uh, 
this word shall be in your mouth and be in your heart. You're going to talk about it when you rise up in the morning and when you go through your day and when you lie down at night. You're going to write it over the doorposts of your house. It's going to be written on your foreheads and on your, on the, on your hands. In other words, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is talking about how parents are to enculturate their children in the knowledge of God. We need to do that. Those who oppose God's truth have always wanted to start indoctrinating children in a foreign worldview. And I think, it's, I think it's important we understand they want our kids. They do. And we can't let them have them. We must enculturate them in a thoroughly Christian biblical worldview starting today.